thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. We are in the middle of the book of Daniel. Last week, we looked at the first uh, sixth chapter in the book where Daniel undergoes a series of uh, tests uh, at the hands of multiple kings. And tonight, and that sort of was a preparatory step to the tonight's study, which is going to take us from chapter 7 all the way through uh, chapter 13. And these are very important chapters, difficult to understand, but extremely relevant to the book of Revelation in many ways. Uh, First in content, the book of Revelation is going to rely heavily on on the vision from the book of Daniel. Second in form, um, there are very many uh, similarities between the two. And third, in the relationship, because the vision that St. John will behold in the beginning of the book of Revelation is actually connected, uh, connected with the book of Daniel and makes no sense apart from it. So... Let's see how far we can get through these chapters. So, reading from the beginning of chapter 7, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Visions of his head, uh, meaning that he did not behold the vision with his physical eyes, but it was an interior vision, something he saw interiorly. Daniel said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were steering up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So the very first verse in that chapter dealing with the winds and the beasts. So this is when we start combining all the stuff we've seen so far. Keep in the background the covenant because it's going to play a very important role to help us understand what's going on here. Then we have to use the four senses of scripture. The first one being the literal sense. We have to understand what he's seeing literally. 
and then we are willing to apply the other senses. And layered on top of that is the symbolic, the symbols that we've seen uh, in prior lectures. And keeping in mind the prophecies that came before Daniel, especially Isaiah. So you kind of have to integrate all that in your head to, to kind of understand what is going on. So, first, the wind is steering the sea. And it's the four winds, and remember that from our symbolism, four is always referencing the whole of creation, but also the Gentiles, the Gentile nation. And the sea is definitely a reference to the Gentile nation. And four beasts come up from the sea. Again, the number four. So four winds, the sea, four beasts. And that is, is to indicate to us the totality of all the Gentile nations which are going to fight against the Anointed One. But not just the Gentile nations, for if it was only a matter of Gentile nations, the vision would not be that complex. It is that complex because behind every Gentile nation, behind every nation attacking the Lord, there are spiritual realities, there are spiritual entities who are also stirring up this nation for a fight. That is why the image is multifaceted. So he sees this, the winds are steering, the four winds are steering, and then out of the sea comes four beasts, different one of each from one from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. It was like a lion and had eagle's wings. If you recall the symbolism of the lion, the lion can go either way. It can be a representation of the Christ because we go back to the prophecy of Jacob to his son Judah. Judah is like a lion's whelp. Or it could also be a representation of the evil. As we read it in the book of St. John, in the, book of, um, in the first letter of St. Peter, beware the devil is like a lion roaming around seeing whom he, he might devour. So obviously here it has a demonic background, but it also indicates on the physical level the strength of that beast. The wings, the eagle's wings, what, is the, what are the properties of the eagle? The eagle is swift, but also long-lived. Those are two of the properties of an eagle, which we've seen in our symbols. Therefore, that beast is strong, it is swift, and it is long-lived. Alright? Then, I, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and made to stand upon two feet like a man, and the might of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. So what happens to it? It is, um, it is, it has been humbled. It has been brought down. Right? An eagle is very, very high. Now, when you pluck off the 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 wings of that beast, it cannot fly. It was it was being brought down. So it has been humbled, and as a result of its humility, it started to look like a man. Remember what we said about the number six and the number seven. Number six indicates what the number of the beasts. Because it is on the sixth day that God created the beasts and man. 
Man was created with the beasts on the sixth day, but man was created for the seventh day. And any time man moves away from the covenant with God, he becomes more like the beasts and less of a man. And any time a man moves away from the world towards the covenant of God, he becomes a man. That's what's going on here. So what is that first beast? The first beast is in reference to the kingdom of Babylon, which was strong and mighty and came down swiftly to take over Jerusalem, which was part of the prophecies that Isaiah and other prophets spoke against the kingdom of Judea. I will bring a nation that you have not known from very far away and will come down swiftly and take you and overtake you. And recall from last week when we saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when for seven years he was taken away and returned into a beast and his reason came back to him and then he humbled himself and magnified God. That is the first beast. Now, the second, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Now, a bear is always representative of aggressiveness. A very, very aggressive and violent uh, behavior, especially every time the bear is quoted, is quoted in, in terms of its relationship with the cubs, and how a bear becomes extremely defensive and violent when the cubs are attacked. Now, it rose up only on one side. The second beast is in reference to the uh, Medo-Persian kingdom. Darius and Cyrus allied themselves and attacked Babylon and overcome it. But Darius reigned only for a very short time and Cyrus was the one who reigned for a longer time. And that's why this beast stands only on one side. It has three ribs in its mouth. Rib in uh, Hebrew is the same word as life. Right? And that's why, in fact, it's, it's very close also to the name of Eve. Right? That's why Eve was named Eve. It's also a relationship of the name rib. There's a play on word with rib and life in Hebrew. And therefore, he has three ribs, meaning this bear is actually devouring life. All right? And the kingdom of uh, Medo-Persia was one who overtook Babylon. And, and after that... Um, had engaged in much wars. We will see that a little bit later. We'll see that more in detail. After this, I looked, and lo, another like a leopard, which with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So a leopard is known for what? Speed. For speed. It's extremely fast. And it had four wings. So its speed was even magnified, even magnified more so than, than that normal. And then this particular leopard has four heads. This is in reference to Alexander. Alexander was able to do his conquest in the span of about six years. It was extremely fast. And the four heads refer to his four generals who will subdivide his kingdom after him. And then the fourth beast, after this, I saw in this night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrible and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. And it, ha it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. 
Now the first thing you notice here is that the beast is not described. There's no actual physical description of the beast. It doesn't look like a leopard or a bear or a lion or any of that stuff. Just we know that he's so impressed by its by it, it has a composite. It's one of the it's the only beast that has teeth of iron. So it's not even purely norm, purely uh, biological. All right? And essentially it is stronger and more dreadful and more terrible than all the other beasts put together. And that is of course the kingdom of, that's of course the, uh, the empire of Rome. The Roman Empire, which was the worst of them all. We're gonna get, it will get even more in detail. In fact, it's so much in detail, there are many who would say that the book of Daniel was not written back then. It was written about 150 years before Christ. Because, of course, God could not have given him such precise, precise visions. Um, St. Jerome, in his commentary, uh, debunks that. And there are many other ways you can debunk it. So, um, we'll come back to this point, actually, a little bit later. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, what is the, what is the form of this beast? Um, Daniel does not describe it, but John does. In the book of Revelation, we go to chapter um, 12, and then we read... Verse 3, And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. So, uh, that is the relationship between the two beasts, and this one is the same as the other one. Uh, the dragon... Um, is again a composite of, um, of a number of, of things and, and political realities and we will get to it in the book of Revelation. I don't want you know, to get out of myself right now. I'm just pointing out to you that there is a complete connection between the two, Revelation. All right? Now, <clears throat> as I looked, so as he was looking at this beast, the fourth, the Roman beast, uh, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, his, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Now recall again from our sim, uh, the, the symbols of numbers, a thousand thousand and ten times and ten, time, ten thousand doesn't mean exactly those numbers, it just means a lot and the completeness of the a lot. There's so a great host around him. That's what it means. The court sat in judgment. And then again, if we look in the book of Revelation, we go to chapter, yeah, four. 
uh, starting with the beginning of verse 2, at once I was in the spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who said, there appeared like jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clad in white garment, with golden crowns upon their heads. From the throne issued flashes of lightning, and voices, and peals of thunder. And before the throne burned seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there is, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. A sea of glass. What is the sea representative of? The Gentiles. Alright? It's very important when the word sea comes up. A sea of glass, like crystal. So it's the sea that is the sea of Gentiles, but it's transformed. It's turned into crystal. Representative of what? Representative of all the Gentiles nation which will be transformed and turned into followers of God. Alright? Followers of God. So, the same thrones, now the only difference is that John is able to give us a lot more detail because he's seeing it from above, standing really close, Daniel is seeing it from below. Right? He's not up, he's below. But there are 24 thrones. Who are those 24 thrones? Well, there's been many, many different uh, opinions given. Um, I, tend to, I tend to stick by St. Jerome's opinion, and that is those thrones, because you can see them in John, but you see them also in Daniel. So they cannot be, you cannot say that those are the new Christians, the martyrs, representative of the Christian martyrs, because Daniel is seeing them, right? Uh, one of the simplest answer is that one of the um, classes of angels, you know, the choirs of angels, are thrones. And so those represent essentially angelic beings. And also the representative of the 24, Zod the 24 constellation of the zodiac. We'll get more into that when we hit Revelation. So be it as it may, as it may, this is the throne, and God is seated in judgment. And the books were open. The books. So there are really two books. Right? The book of life and then the books of death. The book of death. Right. The notion that your name is inscribed in one of those two books. I looked then because of the sound of the great words. Now, before I go any further, anytime you hear the word judgment, the court sat in judgment. If there is judgment, the, what does judgment presupposes? What must you have in order to have judgment? You have to have a judge. And what is this judge going to use? Yes? But the law. A law. Right? Presupposes the law. Which law is, it, is presupposed here? The covenant. The covenant. Alright? So this is covenantal judgment. This is a covenantal lawsuit. Don't disconnect. They sat in judgment from the covenant. He's sitting in judgment in reference to something. That's why the covenant is always there. Always there in the background. Always. That's something to very... You've got to train your mind to think covenantally. And that will help you go over many, many difficulties. Alright. I looked then because of the sound of the great words which the horn was speaking. What is that horn? The horn that is speaking. The horn with many eyes that is speaking. It is a horn of the Antichrist or an Antichrist. Let me say a couple of words about the Antichrist. 
we typically have in our mindset that the Antichrist will be the one and only Antichrist at the end of times. But that is not the case. St. John himself in his letter says that the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus Christ is Lord. Anyone who denies that Christ is God is Antichrist. Alright? So it goes without saying that throughout history there are figures who behaved like the Antichrist will behave at the end of time. And that aligns with our four senses of scripture. There are people who in themselves represent or point to the ultimate Antichrist. The one who will come at the end of time. Alright? So in our own time, for instance, it is safe to say that Hitler was an Antichrist. That Stalin was an Antichrist. This is not far-fetched from an imagination, but when you see how they behave. The other, the other really interesting thing to notice is that the Antichrist or Antichrists appear after a drawn-out period of wars. It sounds, mysteriously, it looks like wars are sort of the engine required for an Antichrist to appear. And we have that consistently. So if you look at the Second World War, the Second World War did not appear like this. The Second World War appears after a whole string of wars. Alright? And we'll see it here as well, how one particular Antichrist appears after a whole string of wars, as if all these wars are sort of sacrifices where all this blood shed is, is mysteriously used for the appearance of the Antichrist. Now, I do not claim to say that it's going to be like this all the time, just an observation. All right. And as I looked, the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And that's why the, the fact that the beast is slain, which means that particular horn was slain with it, indicates that this is definitely not someone who is on, on Christ's side. It is someone opposed to Christ, but it's a beast that has human eyes. Therefore, it is a beast that looks like a man. And we know that at the end of time, the Antichrist will be fully possessed by the devil. Alright? As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in, this, in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so you can see that it is, that came one like a Son of Man. So one came to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days is another title given to God, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and one like a son of man came and stood before him, and to him everything was given. Well, who is this one that is like the son of man? He is the one who came here and always called himself what? The son of man. People think that Jesus called himself the son of man because he's kind of really humble, and he's just saying, you know, just old me, Jesus. Not at all. The son of man is a messianic title. It is the messianic title. That's why he got the Pharisees really upset every time he spoke as the Son of Man. That meant the one to whom dominion and power and glory and is given and his kingdom shall be forever. That's why they really got upset with him. Alright? That is who, this is who the Son of Man is. Now, again, we see the same vision repeated in the book of Revelation. If you turn again to the page, to page, uh, to chapter four of the book of Revelation, 
I'm sorry, chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it, was, it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals for thou wast slain and by thy blood this ransom meant for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and has made them a kingdom and priests or God and they shall reign on earth so it is again it is again a, um, a same vision but the difference between what Daniel sees and what John sees is the crucifixion for John only sees a, uh, Daniel sees only a son of man, John sees a lamb standing as though slain, which was of course the, the risen Christ, to whom everything was given. Alright? Here's the end of the matter, as for me Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed and I kept the matter in my mind. I would like to make here a point about visions. Visions are one of the most difficult gifts that God can give you as you can see. Daniel got that vision. He just got the vision. He saw four beasts and stuff happens in heaven and that's it. No explanation was given. Nothing. So, and then furthermore remember that um, receiving a vision from God is not necessarily a sign of, of uh, holiness because Nebuchadnezzar got a vision, Pharaoh got a vision, Alright, and in that case they, they had been given vision so that the ones who explained the vision may be glorified, Joseph and Daniel. So be careful when you think you got a dream. Yes, yes, a vision is when you're awake. So it's a, you're in a mystical state. So John, for instance, had a vision, but he was awake, he was not sleeping. No, he was, he was dreaming, right? Okay. But whether it's dreams or visions, whether you're in a state where you're awake or a state where you're asleep, typically those visions are not easy to understand. They're very difficult. And one of the reasons why they are very difficult, intrinsically, it is because God is speaking to us from heaven. And in the language that he uses, he shows us how, alien, how heaven is alien to us. He shows that distance. So the first effect that a vision will have on, on one who receives it is humility. All right? It operates at that level whereby it humbles the one who receives the vision. Because it's really not clear. Its meaning is, is obscured. One more note I would like to make on this point. If you compare it to St. Joseph, in the case of St. Joseph, St. Joseph did not have a vision. There was no vision. There was very clear, direct communication given to Joseph. That, shows to, that goes to show how, to what extreme, to what degree, Joseph was united to God.
he spoke to him face to face. Right? For those who are attuned to the mystical life, when they see what happens to Joseph, they bow, they bow in respect because it's pretty amazing. Okay? So, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the vision of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. You will see that the interpretation or the, 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 the visions are going to be repeating, but with more and more detail. So the initial one is given with very little detail. Four kings will come, but the, 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 the saints of God will, will receive the kingdom. Okay? Then I desired to know the truth concerning the, four, the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrible, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped residue with its feet. And concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horns which came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn which had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and which seemed greater than its fellows. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints received the kingdom. Thus he said, as the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down these three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. So, what is, what is being told here is that this fourth kingdom will essentially be different from all the kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth. I tend to think that most of the time when the translation is earth, it should be land, not earth. Because after all, the, the, the Roman Empire did not devour the entire whole earth. They didn't go to the North Pole as far as I'm concerned, nor did they go to the South Pole, and then make it to the Americas. You can argue that they, made, that they devoured the whole earth as far as we know it, but China was known, and Rome did not conquer China. But if you instead see it as the whole land, it means the land versus the sea. What is that land? It's the promised land. Right? Then things make a lot more sense. And we'll see that over and over with John, where all the time the word that they pick to translate with is the earth, but most of the time it doesn't hold. It doesn't hold theologically, it doesn't hold geographically, it doesn't hold militarily. But if you translate it back to land, being the promised land, then things hold. It's much easier to deal with. The other thing I want to point out to you is that here is, for instance, one reason why the Jews were of the belief that when the Messiah will come, when the Christ will come, he will govern the whole world. It's stated right here, black and white, in Daniel. How else would you understand it? How else is it to be understood when it says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven 
shall be given to the people of the, of the saints of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey them. How is that to be understood? How else would you understand it then as an earthly kingdom? Where the Christ reigns and all the people of the saints, meaning Israel, would reign with him over the whole earth. This understanding, this faulty understanding, which Christ fought all the time when he was here because they wanted to make him king. Right? They come one and making it and he runs away from them. Why? Because here's the Messiah. He's going to kick the Romans out. We're going to, he's going to govern the whole earth. And then his dominion will be forever and ever. And he's saying, you still don't understand. You're not getting it. He makes Peter the rock. As soon as Peter becomes the rock and he knows that Christ is supposed to die, whoa, short circuit. That doesn't jive with everything I've learned. And then he essentially takes it upon himself as the Prime Minister to tell Christ, alright, now that you gave me all that power, I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it to protect you. It's not going to happen to you. And he gets that, you know, reply, get thee behind me, Satan. Because you think like the Word, you don't think like God. To understand or to see that the church is the kingdom of God and that the church will reign forever and ever and ever and all nations will serve, do serve the church requires spiritual maturity. Now, who are we to blame those Jews back then when we as Catholics today don't even have that vision? don't even believe that the church is the kingdom of God, don't even believe that all nations will serve the church, and are always in doubt that the church is going to survive. And we're not proud of being Catholics, we don't understand that gift that God gave us, and we don't even consider it the most important thing we have in our lives. But that is the promise given by, by Daniel. Now, the, the, other, the corollary to this is that there is this, especially among folks in the Middle East, there's always this notion that the Jews are out there to govern the whole world. Not only are they are out there to govern them, but they actually do govern the whole world. There's this notion that somehow there's this hidden and secret society made of Jews who are actually governing the whole world. Including China and Japan and places where they've never been. And, but they govern the whole world. Where does it come from? It's the residue of that mistaken belief that has made its way like a worm, into the minds of folks in the Middle East and set them against the Jews. The problem with this is that when people have a definite anti-Semitic approach to Israel, they close their eyes to the, to, to the Scripture because they only can read Scripture politically in ways that actually hide its real meaning from, for them. Their, their hearts are closed. Right? We cannot do that. No matter what Israel does, we cannot demonize them. They're another nation, they're another political power out there, and they're doing crazy stuff, like a lot of other nations out there, but it doesn't mean that we can turn them into the great evil in the world. Not only is that nonsensical, that actually goes against Christ. For St. Bernard said, Do not harm the Jew, for the Jew is the pupil of the eye of the Lord. 
Right? And keep, remind yourself that Peter is a Jew, is, not was, is. Mary is Jewish. She still is Jewish. Never said, I'm stopped being Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. He never said, I'm not Jewish anymore. Paul is Jewish. He never said, I stopped. None of them renounced being Jew. If anything, they'll tell you, we are the real Jews, and those other ones who are not following us are not. Okay? So please, it's very, very important for your spiritual makeup that if you have any problem with the state of Israel today, you do not translate that into hatred of the Jew. End of parenthesis. We will get to that point because we're going to have to, we will have to deal with the ten horns and the ten kings when we hit the dragon in John. So I might, try, I, I, I would, I'm going to delay that till we go back there. And, and there's a whole controversy surrounding the ten horns. But we'll get to that when we hit Revelation. It's going to be the same issue. All right. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, if you look into, your, into those papers I gave you, on the first one, page two, you see the Babylonian dynasty. And you see where Belshazzar stands. He is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, all the way down. He's the last king among the Babylonians. All right, so in that, the reason why Belshazzar is important, is important on two accounts. First of all, he's the last king among the Babylonians, as we saw last time. But also, during his reign, the 70 years, which was prophesied by, um, by um, Jeremiah chapter 52. In Jeremiah chapter 52, there is a prophecy that says that you will be shipped into exile for 70 years because... When God established his covenant with you, he told you that every seventh year, you must let the, lay, the land lay foul. You must not work the land. It must rest every seventh year. And on the Jubilee, the, seventh, the year that follows the seventh seventh, which is the 50th year, it's called the Jubilee year, if anyone has lost his land because of debt, or if anyone has been enslaved to you because of debt, on the Jubilee year, he's set free. And he goes back to his possession of the land that he had before. That was part of the law that God gave them. Economically, this is how they were supposed to live it. Did they? No. So, they were in the land for about 500 years, 490. And they never did what God asked of them. So he said, you owe me 70 years. I'm going to ship you an exile for 70 years so that the land will at last get its rest. So, being in Babylon, they knew of that prophecy. They knew that 70 years would go by. And effectively, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, 70 years had gone by. Now, I want you, again, to put yourself in that context. You have your kids with you. It's been 70 years. Some have been born in Babylon. Some don't even know anything about the Holy Land, anything about the Temple of Solomon, anything about any of that stuff. They're born in Babylon. They, have, they, they live in Babylon... And all they know is Babylon. And you've been living with that promise of 70 years. That after 70 years, you'll be able to go home. Well, 70 years has come, and 70 years has gone. And you're still there. What do you suppose will be the effect on, on the people? The fact that 70, the prophecy of Jeremiah did not seem to come to fruition would have an acid effect. Those who truly have faith will stick through. Those who don't will let go. Right? 
Another important point is that God may make a prophecy, but He will not automatically realize it. It depends on what? It depends on our response. It depends on how we respond to Him. Why were they shipped to exile for 70 years? To learn the ways of the Lord. To humble themselves and to understand what they have done and how they broke the covenant. They got to Babylon, they settled in Babylon, and what did they do? Right? Daniel was occupying a very high post with um, Shadrach, Meshach, right? They were occupying very high posts, so their people thrived. Hey, we're in Babylon, do like, you understand? Now, this is how we have to approach Revelation. The same way, the exact same way, must be used in approaching Revelation. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell upon my face. But he said to me, understand, the son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. That is another really important aspect. If you miss the covenant... If you don't have the covenant in the background, when you hear the time of the end, what do you understand? The end of time. But the notion of the end of time is dependent on what? When will the end of time come? The end of time will come when the covenant has reached its fruition. When all the saints have been gathered. Right? So when he says the time of the end, the end of what? The end of the Mosaic Covenant. You understand? Literally, it's the end of the Mosaic Covenant. Then, by analogy, applying the spiritual sense of analogy that deals with the end times, there is also a sense that applies to the end of the world. But not primarily. Not primarily. You understand? If you don't understand it this way, you will get yourself into a whole host of trouble. Why? Because St. Paul uses the same language, St. Peter uses the same language, they speak of the end of time, and they say it's coming right now, it's soon, it's imminent, it's going to come. Alright? And you have people who read that stuff, basically St. Paul is saying, Jesus is coming soon, St. Peter is saying, Jesus is coming soon. The Lord himself said, truly I say to you, there are those who are standing here who shall not taste death before the coming of the Son of Man. Well, was Jesus wrong? Was Peter wrong? Was Paul wrong? D did Jesus come? Have we missed him? Yes, he did. How? Understand Daniel. All those kingdoms are what? are visitation of God. They are the terrible day of the Lord. The, the Lord is the Lord of history. He is in control. He is the one who gives power to this nation and takes it away from that nation. And when He provokes a war, it is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a day of visitation. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day of judgment. Now, will that happen at the end of the world? Absolutely, it will. But you must understand it sacramentally first, before you understand it physically. Otherwise, we miss the boat. And we get ourselves into a lot of anguish and, and problems. Yes? 
Because they don't have the four senses of scripture. They only understand the literal sense. And because they are attuned to the future only, they only see the end of time. And then they get themselves into a host of problems. But not only the Protestant, mind you. In the 19th century, there was a leading French theologian who essentially ended up dying a heretic. He left the church. He died, actually, not even a heretic. He died an atheist. He lost his faith. And he took a whole host of, of people with him, both Protestant and Catholic, out of faith completely, based on that one problem. Jesus said he was coming. Where is he? Why? Because there isn't a covenantal-based understanding of Scripture anchored on the four senses of, of Scripture. Without those two pieces, Scripture is not clear. All right. Now again, notice, Gabriel shows up. This is, of course, the archangel Gabriel who shows up. What happens to Daniel? He's floored. He's terrified. If you keep those visions in mind, when you go to the, to the Annunciation and you see how Gabriel speaks to Mary, which in all the visitation that Gabriel had with mankind, he never spoke like that. Never. Ever. Never was an angel or an archangel astounded or complimented a human being the way Gabriel did with Our Lady. Never. As he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and set me on my feet. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the, of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So what happened to him? Gabriel spoke to him, and the words of Gabriel were so powerful that he put him in a state of a state similar to death. Deep sleep is the same word used to represent death. Adam was put into a deep sleep when God took a, um, um, a rib from his side to make Eve. And, and the, the, the father spoke of Jesus on the cross being in a deep sleep. And I always distinguish between the deep sleep and death, which is condemnation into hell. Alright? Or they call it a second death. Okay? This is how powerful are the words of the archangel to, give to, to, to Daniel. We, collectively, apart from the grace of Christ, if the Archangel Gabriel was to appear to us right now, right, apart from the grace of Christ, we will do two things. Immediately. We will be floored, all of us, terrified, all of us, and we will worship the angel. We cannot countenance an angel. We cannot see an angel in his glory. It's impossible for us, apart from the grace of Christ. That's why I tell you, go back and see how Mary reacts before the angel, and you will be astounded. Once we, we, will have, we will spend quite a bit of time understanding angels, because they're so little understood and so little appreciated by us. Um, but, but if you really f have a proper appreciation for their glory, compared to, to who we are, you will understand why Daniel, Isaiah, you know, all the saints, without exception, were floored every time an angel appeared. John, St. John himself, likewise. Twice in the book of Revelation, I'll show you, twice an angel speaks to him, and then bam, John is on the floor. And he wants to worship the angel. And the angel tells him, you must not do that. St. John, if you think that you won't do that, you've not understood the depth of depravity of the human heart. 
If you think you won't do that, if you think you can stand your ground before an angel, you've not understood the depth of depravity of the human heart and how much we have to rely on Christ's grace for us to be able to function. So I always chuckle when I hear people saying, well, why doesn't God appear to us? Alright. So Daniel, Gabriel appears to him, he's sent to explain to Daniel what he saw and to make him, make him understand. And so again, I repeat to you that you must be a great devotee of your guardian angel because just as Gabriel was sent to Daniel to explain to him the vision nothing will come to you no explanation no graces nothing will come to you that does not come to you through your guardian angel nothing every good idea every good intention every sign of hope every good emotion everything that steers your heart to good comes to you from your guardian angel that's why God sent him that's what he does all day long 24 hours and if you've not yet started to have a really good devotion to your guardian angel I'm telling you all you got to do is when you're, you're driving somewhere and you need a parking lot ask your guardian angel to find you a parking space see what happens just start right there so as for the ram which you saw with the two horns these are the kings of Media and Persia Darius and Cyrus as we said and the he goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king which is Alexander as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others rose for, for four others arose four kingdoms shall arise from his nation but not with his power and at the latter end of their rule when the transgressors have reached their full measure a king of bold countenance one who understands riddles shall arise his power shall be great and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people of the saints by his cunning he shall make the seed prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall magnify himself without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes but by no human hand he shall be broken the vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true but seal up the vision for it pertains to many days hence seal it up the vision was not given for your people living during your time it is given for many days hence well Lord if it's given for many days hence why was it given if it was not going to apply right there and then why was it given why was the vision given so early on when it was going to apply only much later why is God teasing us no 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 the reason why it's given and always always it is for increase of faith it is given so that those who have faith may meditate upon this vision continuously learning the ways of God so that when it happens they'll recognize the fullness of time the fact that St. Paul said in the fullness of time God sent his only son what fullness of time what was he referring to when he said in the fullness of time? This. Okay? This. God gave signs so that those who have faith may see them and those who do not may not see them. That's why Christ could actually 
speak in judgment against these people, the Pharisees. They were supposed to be the ones studying this day and night, pouring over it, understanding the signs that God gave them to recognize the time of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. And the fact that they could not meant that they did not spend their time pouring over this, studying it. They were busy by other things. You know, they had baseball to attend and stock market and all these other wonderful things. They didn't have time to study this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahas, Ahab, Ahasuerus, by Berthamid, who became king over the realm of the Chaldean. So this is Darius, who is, um, who is uh, the one who, with Cyrus, took over Belshazzar. All right? Um, because we know he's a Mede. He's the only Mede in that dynasty, and that's, that's, that's his name appearing here. I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years which, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. And I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, There is here a prayer, chapter 9. I will only read a couple of the verses in this prayer, uh, because we would be spending two hours on it easily. O Lord, the great and terrible God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from, the command, from Thy commandments and ordinances, we have not listened to Thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in Thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To Thee, O Lord, God belongs righteousness, but to us confusion of faith, and at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel. So you can see how Daniel takes on the, the sins of all his nation, even though him, him personally may be blameless, but he takes on the sins of all his people and confesses his sins before the Lord. He connects what happened to them in being shipped out to Babylon with what? Their sinfulness and their breaking away from the covenant. Right? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. So those of you who may be concerned with earthquakes and other natural disasters, and bird flus, and what have you. Right? You've got a pattern right here. That's what God expects of us. Not to say, well, it's not my problem, it's someone else's problem. Say, it's my problem. It's my people. We've done it. I've done it. Lord, have mercy on us. You understand? The chapter of divine mercy is a continuation of this prayer of Daniel. Okay? Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have, we are interceding for the whole world. So we must understand that this intercession is, is effectively what pleases God. When we look around us and we take upon ourselves the sins of those around us. Why does this please God? Because it is an imitation of His only Son. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Daniel does here. A long intercessory prayer in which he says, we've deserved the punishment you gave us and the curses of the covenant that came upon us because of how we acted. We deserve all that, but now have mercy on us. Restore us. Seventy years have come and gone. Send us back to our land. Okay? And he prayed for... So notice... 
uh, verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him in, by prayer and supplication, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Alright? Fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Okay? So there are sacrifices we have to do if we're praying for the end of abortion, if we're praying for a change of heart. There are sacrifices we have to do, not because we deserve it, but out of love. That's a very important thing that we must do, that we must do here. So what, I'm, what, I'm, what I want you to do for next week, and this is perfect for our Lenten season, is read this prayer and meditate on this prayer. Right? And ask yourself this question, how can I pray this way? Ask your God an angel to show you how you can pray in this way. For your family, you may have members of your family who have gone away from the faith. For those in your community, in your parish. Pray, pray to God. If you're looking for something to, to, um, for something to offer up, you may want to consider offering up some sacrifices so that in your own parish, in your own church, where you go to Mass, Sunday after Sunday, that the Lord God will give your parish the grace that there may, may not be one sacrilegious communion. Pray for that. Because it will not surprise me if in every parish there is at least one sacrilegious communion. Meaning someone coming to receive the Lord and this person in a state of mortal sin. Pray for that. Pray for holiness in your parish. Love the parish in which you are. Love the priest. Regardless of his problems or regardless of the people's problems. Love him by praying that God may sanctify the priest that he has sent you and that the priest in turn may sanctify the people. This is a pleasing prayer for God. Nothing can please him more. This is in your power. You can do that. Silently, quietly. No one will ever know. God knows. No one, no one will ever be able to tell. There may be changes that will happen in your parish. Slowly. Things might change. Things might turn. But no one will know that it had anything to do with you. That's how it should be. Pray that they may praise your priest. As it should be. Because this is what gives glory to God. If you pray this way, Scripture will be open to you. Because, as you see in Daniel, he prayed sincerely to God. Visions were given to him and explanations were given. And who was Daniel? He was a man, an ordinary man. And since he was not a priest, he was a man who, did, who loved his people and acted uprightly before God and had a sincere love for God. Who cannot do this here? What are we all lacking? Nothing. Except perhaps God's love. So if anything in this Lenten season, if you've not begun to offer up something, start now. And offer it up in union with your God and angel and focus on what you can do in your parish. And you can do a lot. Because God is with you. That is the meaning to be in the church. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.